And good afternoon. It is just after 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice, spoken word program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up on the show today, uh, in the first hour from uh, the January 7th, and the journey continues, open mic reading in that monthly series. Uh, you'll hear the full of the first round uh, with, uh, or I'm sorry, full of the third round uh, now with readings by Sarah Emtage, uh, Meg Freer, Bob McKenzie, Michael Castiles, Dale Tracy, Allison Wong, Ken Chin, Layla Paveo Chisamore, uh, Ragini Singh. Corey Toke, Eric Folsom, Jordan Lane, and uh, me as well. And uh, I mentioned it is the third round because that was the final round over the course of the last couple of weeks or so, I think. I've played the other two rounds uh, in various, as part of the show at least. And uh, also, uh, I'm, I do have a lot of time in the first hour uh, today uh, that I'm going to, uh, that I've actually reserved to bring up, uh, to share with you a number of upcoming uh, submissions and uh, calls for submissions and events. So we will be spending a good, you know, a decent portion of the hour, I guess, the end of the hour doing that, but you'll hear those readings first. And in the second hour, you'll hear a recent uh, interview I conducted with author Charlene Jones, uh, followed by her reading from her latest book, a memoir called My Impossible Life, and that just came out in December, so it's brand new. And uh, up this first, though, the usual hourly announcement, uh, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So up first, and we're going to move into the final, third and final round uh, in uh, January 7th, and the journey continues open mic reading in that monthly series held at the Elm Cafe. Up first, uh, again, I'll mention, in case you tuned in a minute or two late, I'll be airing, uh, after first airing, I should say, the first and second rounds uh, last week. And I think maybe the week before, but definitely last week. And even now, uh, even then, we went uh, just a couple of readers into the third round. Up next in it, uh, as you hear the rest, and these are in groupings. I usually bring it up in case you're new to the show, uh, is that uh, these are done in the round. So uh, it's one poet, one poem. So what I do is rather than just read a or air one poem, I will make little groups of them. So you're going to hear readings uh, by Sarah Emtish, Meg Freer, and Bob McKenzie. Here you go. A candle, alternatively titled, That Which Frightens My Dentist. There is a candle standing in the darkness of my throat, and it's grinning and it's glinting and it's gleaming as it glows. The flame, it flickers, flickers in the wake of every breath. Yes, the flame, it dances, dances, but it never meets its death. 
The flame attacks the wax beneath its fascinating form, wax that softens into honey as it welcomes in the warmth. It is dripping, cooling, cooling on the surface of my tongue, and I taste it in my molars, and I taste it in my lungs. And I must be very careful, if I ever try to speak, that I do not set on fire every object in my reach. As we bring up Meg Freer, let's give Sarah Hemptage another hand. This is a narrative poem based on uh, my experience at the Cliffs of Mower on the west coast of Ireland three months ago. Stone music. We persevere through strong prevailing winds on the coastal path, walk past the stone memorial to those who lost their lives here, past an ad, need to talk? Samaritans, 1-850-09090 past a sign, you are now leaving the grounds of the Cliffs of Mower Visitor Center. Exercise extreme caution beyond this point. We join a steady stream of tourists and go beyond the sign advising, please do not go beyond this point. A fall from the cliff edge to the base is incompatible with survival. I am sure it will be the man who takes a wide stance half a meter from the exposed cliff edge while he focuses his zoom lens, or any of the people who pose for selfies, maybe one or all of the three men who sit right on the edge. I asked the one looking through binoculars if he has seen Atlantic puffins and worry he might lean, lean over too far. No forensic evidence that any victim had been pushed over the cliffs. But the puffins, I later heard, had left two weeks before, and the man with binoculars has just seen someone drop 600 feet off these sandstone and shale cliffs. The search and rescue helicopter circles and hovers, circles and hovers. A winchman descends to the cliff top to speak to witnesses while the all-seeing scurvy grass, sheepspit, and hawkweed gossip, and afternoon light wanes. Nearly two-thirds of all victims who died at the cliffs were male. The sea gives up the man's personal belongings, keeps his body to herself that evening and overnight, and her crashing waves play stone music with his bones. Next day, shore patrols spot the, bed, the body at the cliff base, and Irish Coast Guard swimmers risk being dashed against large rocks to retrieve him and return to the rescue boat. Suicide or open verdicts were returned by the coroner in 50% of international fatalities. Celtic crows, many and loud, add their voices to those in my head. I have too much information. The newspapers call it a personal tragedy. But what scale-tipping spec caused the man to question his status as a person? Summer extends a gossamer hand over October, the flowering, fruiting hedgerow brambles, a false blessing foretelling the hard winter that will echo across blanket bog, mountains, and moorland. So we bring up Bob McKenzie. Let's give McFreer another hand.
this is uh, another poem to tear a piece. This, the words by me and the music by Ian Rebel. It's called Elsa. There's a rustle in your name like the passing of the years, the sound of days falling like leaves around you, inevitably to leave a barren scarecrow in the wind without a rustle. There's already a look of scarecrow in your eyes, a certain hollow in your face and hunger in your mane that can only grow like chaos inward upon itself. There's a beauty about you, but it is the derelict fantasy of a long vacant mansion or the prairie in November rather than that of youth in search of life. There's a rustle that follows you as you move, carrying autumn from room to room and filling every room with leaves until one day you shall have shed so much of yourself that none shall be left for the present. Bring up Michael Castiles. Let's give Bobby Kinsey another hand. And you just heard uh, readings by Sarah M. Tish, Meg Freer, and Bob McKenzie. Again, that was in the third round of the January 7th, uh, and the Journey Continues monthly open mic reading. Again, these are always held now at the Elm Cafe. Up next from it, you'll hear readings by Michael Castiles, Dale Tracy, and Allison Wong. Let's bring them up now. This is chapter 64. It was late when I finally returned home from my walk. The whole neighborhood was asleep. A lone crept cat crossed the street, but besides that, the street was asleep too. The night was still, the moon pinned to the sky's black lapel. A few stars peered down. These too seemed slumberous. I'd walked my normal route along the lake, but I'd taken my time, and in that time, I'd become an old man. I needed a cane and suspenders. I felt like my teeth were about to slip out of my mouth, like I should be sitting in a rocking chair with a troop of children gathered around my feet. I'd tell them this. That night, as I returned from my walk, I noticed something on the roof of my house. From the end of the street, I couldn't make it out. It was just a dark lump above my door. I was directly below it before I could tell what it was. A pigeon hunched on the eaves trough. Its eyes were open, its beak turned down in a grimace. There was something mildly ominous about the situation. If it had been a raven or a crow, I might, it, I might have considered it a harbinger of death. But a pigeon? What could that mean? Part of me wanted to get a broom and scare it off, but another part thought, regardless of what the pigeon symbolizes, it's still just a pigeon, resting after a long day of seeking crumbs. I left the pigeon alone. It wasn't my place to disturb the bird, ominous or not. I unlocked the door and stepped inside. It was late and there wasn't much else for me to do, so I washed my face, brushed my teeth, climbed into bed, closed my eyes, and stared into the backsides of my eyelids. My joints ached and my hip was giving me grief. My hair fell out strand by strand. My skin felt thin, though wrinkled beyond belief. I was my grandfather, the ancient one. I was withered, light as a feather. 
I drifted apart. The next morning, I was back to my old self, which in fact was my younger self. It felt strange though, like I was too young, much younger than the day before. I wondered about my grandfather. If I was this young, maybe he'd still be alive. I could sit by his feet while he sat in his rocking chair, telling me a story from his childhood. The prairie stretched out forever in every direction. He stood in the center of it all, watching a flock of tiny black birds fill the sky. There were thousands, all flying as one, expanding, contracting, and never once did any two collide. Thank you. As we bring up Dale Tracy, let's give Michael Castillo's another hand. Font. Inked, yet unked, I utter to the last extremity. I gather up my unappropriate twiggage, my unrimpled me. I am grateful to my alleged disarray. I am grateful to my candid friend's clutched pearls. I am grateful to commit rhymes. I am grateful to grace my own fun and games. I am grateful to my qualified disappointment. I am grateful to the news at my fingerprints. I am grateful to judge, lest my judgment be judged. I jest when I just want to be grateful. I am gracious, sateless, Unbecoming. As we bring up Allison Wong, let's give Dale Tracy another hand. On writing. Lately, I find myself searching for writing that will hit me like a blow to the stomach, and more importantly, hit my readers in the stomach. I want writing like crumpled up doodles in the margins of messy notes, like razors in somebody's palm balanced precariously between beauty and hate, like ripped red flags billowing in the chaos of a stranger's life, hanging on by mere threads, but if you look carefully enough, you can still see the flowers that once bloomed there. I want writing like piles of discarded wrapping paper in the trash on Boxing Day, the remnants of a laugh or a tear or a thousand paper suns that the garbage man glances at the next Monday and does a double tape because there's still a shine to the jagged fraying edges and someone's mother's name still signed on the bottom corner with love. Writing like fragments of broken bottles on the ground that only the people who look at their feet when they walk stop to notice the reflections or pieces of it in someone else's pain in someone else's numbness, in someone else's drowning, left there for people to recall their own raised glasses, toasts to better times left over at their feet from their first drink or the first time seeing an old friend in years, and those wild nights of youth floating on a sea of uproarious laughter and the tinkling of those shards across the pavement echoes the sharp intake of breath when your foot catches in the door jam and makes you stop and look behind you for another glance at the sky before it disappears behind productivity. Writing like ants squished on the bottom of some kid's shoe, the ones that didn't make it in between the cracks, and the one situation where falling through the cracks would be okay. Writing that is both the hand outstretched to catch you and the honest blanket of serrated rocks below, silently asking the question, will you fall or will you fly?
As we bring up uh, Ken Chin, let's give Ellison Wong another hand. And you just heard readings by Michael Castiles, Dale Tracy, and Allison Wong in the third round of the January 7th and the Journey Continues monthly open mic reading. Up next from it, you'll hear readings by Ken Chin, Leila Pavel, Chisamore, Ragani Singh, and Corey Toke. This one's called Everest. In the early 80s, when uh, it was all the rage to go to Mount Everest, so this is what uh, a little incident that happened to me. I'm going to the top of Mount Everest, he said in a voice loud enough for the whole room to hear. He glanced back at us, just to make sure that we all clearly heard him. We stood in the line at the service counter at the Nikon depot in Mississauga, waiting in line to check our cameras for repair as if any one of us wanted to be there on that hot summer day, much less listen to that blonde crew-cut idiot bragging detail to the service person who most likely didn't want to listen to him any more than the rest of us standing in line. He turned slightly to look at our reaction, big arrogant smirk on his face, kind of smirk that says, I'm going to do something you'll never do. I'm going to go to a place you can only dream of. So look at me, envy me, you suckers. I suppose he was right in one sense. I'm never going to climb Mount Everest, never going to pay exorbitant prices for someone to babysit me to the summit, just for bragging right to say that I did it. Never have the opportunity to throw my shit all over a pristine white mountain so that someone else can go up and clean it. I've seen that smirk again on the face of dragon boat rowers, winners of local dragon boat races that book to go to Hong Kong, no longer content to live vicariously through movies and role-playing games, these tough guys, weekend warriors, those pencil-pushing office workers, employees of banks and multinational companies with their well-toned muscles, sculptured by hours at expensive fitness clubs. Every time I meet assholes like that, I kept saying to myself over and over again, give them the dues, they deserve it, and I physically stopped myself from rolling my eyes, shaking my head, and just walking away in disgust. Thank you. As we bring up Layla Paveo Chismore, let's give uh, Ken Chin another hand. Uh, the translated title of this one is essentially the Portuguese version of uh, Talk is Cheap. Fala não costa. My grandmother says, holding my face as she does her own to the price is right. As a child, I hoped to spin, pulled from the crowd. Covetous of yellow name tags, I did not want a car, but to hear the screaming garbled numbers and guess, one bob? To touch Plinko discs and race, as if fate could be so arbitrary, as if I did not study prices in the grocery store. <laughs> As we bring up Ragini Singh, let's give uh, Layla Pavel Chisamore another hand. Uh, so I also sing. 
uh, and write songs, so I thought I would sing something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a cage is no place for a burning soul. All that it takes to break it is one major goal. Avenge what you've lost. Take spirits on a ride. You're more than the knots of bitter steel that they tie. Don't walk on a tightrope when you're meant to fly. So over a paper moon, don't mask your own words. Erase your prohibitions and sing. to a broken world escape and break the locks That's it. as we bring up Cory to uh, Cory Toke let's uh, give Ragani Singh another hand So this is the rare piece I feel does need a preface to make sense. The, it's part of a longer project where the conceit is that they're poems written by a human soldier serving on the front lines during Earth's invasion of Mars. Okay. <laughs> Emissary. Kneel in your ancestor's soil and beg. Convince me your life is worth preserving, your message worth hearing. Then get the hell out. Don't look back. Instead, with each step, wonder if you'll meet my mercy's end. As we bring up Eric Folsom, let's give Corey Toke another hand. And you just heard uh, Ken Chin. Layla Pabeo Chisamore, Raikini Singh, and Corey Toke in the third round of the January 7th and the Journey Continues monthly open mic reading. Again, that's always held at the Yom Cafe. There's only one set of uh, poets left in that to air. And right before I do that, though, most of our uh, public service announcements and promos and uh, ads and that kind of thing are recorded but occasionally we get uh, we just get written ones here uh, for us to air this is one of them so i think i'm going to share that now because it's coming up tomorrow night actually and i'll probably uh mention this again in the second hour uh, i'm going to read it as it is and then uh, i might add a word or two uh, but it says Saturday, February 1st, uh, 2020 at 8 p.m. In fact, from 8 p.m. to 1 a.m. at the Blue Martini, uh, there's going to be a special benefit show. Uh, this show is to benefit the Moon family. All proceeds from the door will be donated to the cause. Music acts will include our friends, Little Betty, Tegan McLaren, Christopher Jackson, and friends and an acoustic set from members of the Road Apples. 
Uh, tickets are just $20. Come down for a night of love and music. And then it mentions that, uh, for those of you that aren't aware, uh, the Moon family has had a real t- rough time of it with their place burning down and then shortly after their father husband of three children uh, dying in a car accident so a real tragedy and it says this benefit will be held saturday again february 1st 2020 at 8 p.m to 1 a.m at the blue martini and so i just thought i would share that with you uh this afternoon and if you could help out uh, that would be wonderful. And um, we're going to go ahead and move then into the last uh, round, short round of uh, readings, three of us. Uh, what I've decided to, somebody has given me uh, as a gift a couple of months ago or maybe less. Uh, I am I really love Simon and Garfunkel. I've never had one of their, I owned albums a long time ago, but I don't own a CD. Uh, and... Uh, so they bought me the uh, the person bought me uh, g- their greatest hits album. There's a really I've played a few cuts off of it already, and I was thinking about retiring it for a bit from at least the radio show. I'll still listen to it on my own. Uh, but uh, there's one song I haven't had a chance to air, and I really love it, and it's very very short. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go straight from uh, the final reading in this quite short set really of readings and play that uh, one minute uh, one minute song Uh, it's a minute and 20 seconds I believe and it's Simon and Garfunkel's uh, song called bookends and that will happen right after readings from the again January 7th monthly open mic reading and you're going to hear in this order Eric Folsom Jordan Lane and me. So uh, back to uh, translating Jacques Cocteau. Um, I'm afraid this is Jacques Cocteau the depressive. Um, um, but um, I, I call these unfaithful translations, and just to give you an idea of how unfaithful I am, I, I will read the first three lines of this poem and then the translation. Peu m'importe la pluie et les vitres d'automne. Le mystère galope et que la mer nous tourne, je souffre de notre saison. The rain at the autumn window does not matter. The mistral gallops and the white cat waves scatter. I live a different season. A time when the body is without sun or rain. No solid piece of earth that a home might, might maintain locked out of the house of reason, imprisoned by a cult whose dark priests are hidden, windows far beyond reach draw my eyes unbidden. I'm unable to climb higher. Their religion does not believe in miracles. The priests use my mouth to proclaim their oracles, and fear requires Jordan Lane, let's give Eric Folsom another hand. Uh, this one's called Nidari after the uh, jellyfish. 
distant they travel, this mindless throng, only to unknow the routes they follow. Yet, while God knotted brains and clicked vertebrae, you, throbbing bloodless hearts, navigated the turbulence of epochs. Jordan Lane, let's give her another hand. Well, I'm going to read a final poem. It's a short poem to finish it up. But before I do that, it's uh, we've heard some wonderful readings and even a song here this evening. So let's give yourself and everybody else a hand. One more hand for Anthea, who's taking great care of us today. And if someone has a calendar and can tell me what the first Tuesday of uh, February is, that uh, I think it's the 6th, but I don't know. Anyway, that's the next time we get together. The, the first Tuesday of the month is probably easier to remember than a day anyway, so... The fourth, we'll see there. You would have been here two days late and very disappointed with a locked door. This is called Everything. To make sure nothing is left out, I've made it a point to write my humble autobiography just an instant before I die and will pretend along the way I am not waiting too long. Thanks. And you just heard uh, readings by Eric Folson, Jordan Lane, and me in the third round of the January 7th and the Journey Continues monthly open mic reading held at the Elm Cafe. Again, those were the final readings in uh, not only the full the third round, but uh, since that was the final round, uh, it was, you heard the last readings of the event. And then you heard uh, 
Simon and Garfunkel with uh, their song called Bookends. Uh, tell you what, let's do this and I'll be right back. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. The Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance, widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group, while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. Shirelli, here on CFRC 101.9, Monday nights at 7. which has offered service to youth in the Kingston area since 1974. The goals of the organization are to allow youth to take responsibility for their behavior, to reduce the number of youth involved in the young offender system, to reduce the number of people victimized by youth in our community, and to involve the community in youth corrections. The Youth Diversion Program believes that all members of our community have the responsibility to provide all youth with the opportunity to develop and grow to their fullest potential. They work in partnership with the community to develop quality programs to assist youth to make positive changes in their lives and at the same time take responsibility for their actions. Further information, call 613-548-4535 or email info at youthdiversion.com. Folk Everything. 
every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red to James, that's a fine And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. I'm here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And I'm going to share a number of events and calls for submissions because there, there's a lot of stuff coming up and going on this weekend. Uh, but I'm going to get my notes all ready, and uh, what I think I'm going to do, let's see what I've got here. I'm going to throw on a song. So let's go ahead and just do this one. Uh, it's a group called, it's a Brit, uh, British group called Echo Belly, and I'm not sure what year they did this song, but it's called Scream. Here they are with it.
And you just heard Echo Belly with a song called Scream. I believe there have been a number of covers done of that song, but I believe they were the ones that actually wrote it. Could be wrong, but I think that's the way it is. So, Anyway, you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC. I'm playing around with a little bit of music today, and we'll continue to do that in the second hour as well. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, yeah, and uh, I want to go through some events again here first. I've got one more song I'm actually going to play before the end of the hour, just uh, because I don't have that many events to share with you, so... I think it will all work out pretty well. Let's do the uh, calls for submissions first. Get your pen, soul, or pen handy here because some of these are expiring very quickly. In fact, uh, today is the 31st. You've got till midnight tonight if you want to submit to Juniper, uh, Juniper Poetry Journal. Uh, they're looking for up to three unpublished poems in the body of an email to the editors at Juniper Poetry at gmail.com I would suggest uh, they, they don't want any attachments and they want to cover letter uh, should include titles they want it just pasted to the body of an email I believe and yeah and uh, they are open for submissions January May and September so today is the last day of this round of submissions uh, you can check it out juniperpoetry.com to get, take you right to the website uh, there is another one, Art Poetry Magazine. Uh, they Tomorrow at midnight is their final day, and it's their Poem of the Year contest. Uh, it says it's among the richest in Canada, awarding $5,000 to the winning poet. Uh, why don't you check out their website as well? They also have a Facebook page, but their website is arcpoetry.ca. And then if you slash 2019... Slash 11, slash 26, slash POTY 2020. I'm sure if you just went to the website, you'd get it. But that should be a pretty direct link. Uh, another thing, call for submissions. Uh, uh, looking for youth and young adults. This is good until uh, a week from tomorrow, I believe. Anyway, February 9th, week from Sunday night at 11.59 p.m. Juniper uh, Juvenus is one of only two youth art groups in uh, all of Canada, I'm told, and fortunately we have one of them here in Kingston. Uh, for their 2020 play series, they're seeking three original plays. I'd suggest check out their uh, Facebook page uh, and uh, just uh, J-U-V. E-N-I-S, uh, and uh, they have, uh, you could also... Uh, contact Courtney Day, and this is uh, Courtney, C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y dot D-A, D I'm sorry, D-A-Y, should spell it all out, at, and I'm not going to spell this out, bluecanoetheatrical.ca. And again, uh, their Facebook page should have all that information as well. I've got some more calls coming up, but they're a couple of weeks out, so... Let's just deal with what's more immediate. Moving into events. There is uh, tomorrow, and I just found out about this place. It's pretty cool. It's called the Hummingbird House uh, Winter Salon. Uh, tomorrow afternoon, is it? Uh, tomorrow evening from 6.30 to 
Uh, it's uh, it's located actually uh, in Sydenham. I don't have an exact address, but I can give you their Gmail account, and it's hummingbird. Uh, so H U M M I N G B R D M K T G. So obviously for hummingbird marketing, I'm guessing uh, at gmail.com. Uh, there. You'll need tickets for it, but who they're featuring uh, tomorrow evening is uh, Shaman Stories with uh, Tim uh, Yarrington and the Medicine Wheel. And they do have a Facebook event page, so I'd suggest checking that out. And uh, I believe uh, you just uh, do Hummingbird. Um, trying to decipher here. And they've got an event, too. So just, yeah, Hummingbird House. I think if you just do Hummingbird House, they've got the event listed on there, too. I'd give you a bunch of numbers, but I think you should be able to just uh, should be able to uh, locate it through the search engine there, uh, search bar or whatever you call it on Facebook. And you've heard some of them. Last week you heard others, but uh, coming up... Uh, is the next and the journey continues open mic reading series so sort of more of kind of what you heard in the first hour here uh and a lot more because by the third round some people uh had only uh, come with two poems because that's usually all we get to so a few people had three that night and we continued on uh and and uh so it's this coming tuesday night february 4th from 7 to 9 30 uh, at p.m. and uh, the doors open at 6:30. It is a free event, again held at the Elm Cafe, which is located at 303 Montreal Street. It's on the corner of uh, Montreal and Charles. And uh, I'm not sure if I said uh, doors do open at 6:30. The event runs from 7 to 9:30. Reigns will start shortly after everybody's signed in and uh, the line at the till uh, at the counter has cleared and then we'll start so it's usually a few minutes after seven uh then uh if you're closer to tweed at the tweedsmere tavern uh there it's their first uh tuesday night of the month poetry series called the first tuesday muse it's happening in tweed also this coming tuesday february 4th from 7 to 9 p.m and the following day, Creative Writing at Queen's Reading and Discussion Series uh, will feature Leslie Ballou, uh, and uh, Anishinaabek uh, poet, author Leslie Ballou, uh, winner of the 2018 Pat Lowther Award, uh, will be uh, holding a, uh, w the way they usually work, is a reading and then a short discussion or Q&A uh, following that. Uh, these normally, well, this will still happen in Watson Hall, so it's happening in Watson Hall, which is located at 49 Bader Lane uh, on Queens Campus in Kingston, normally in room 517, but uh, this time it's going to be room 217, so just keep that in mind. If you're used to going, because they've had a lot of them there, and the people that are used to, they're like me, landmark people, and, <laughs> or people that just keep doing the same thing all the time, or are used to patterns, I guess, uh, they will be uh, three doors down in room 217 that day. 
And that's coming up again Wednesday, February 5th. So this coming Wednesday from 1 to 3 p.m. And uh, let's see what we got here for time. We got a few more minutes. Uh, there is uh, there are some things coming up a week from tomorrow. So see, I'm even getting out that far. Uh, there is a storytelling event for children. It's called Selkies to She-Wolves and Storytelling Without Borders. It's going to be happening at the Rehearsal Hall at the Isabel Bader Center for the Performing Arts, uh, which is located at 390 King Street West. And uh, it's a 45-minute show, and it's kind of recommended for ages 6 through 12. So if you've got some kids, it's a storytelling event uh, that is uh, run by Selena Chiarelli, a local storyteller and singer. And it says she takes you on an adventure of discovery, tapping into the intercultural uh, collection of stories she's amassed to bring you something new from something very old indeed. And then also Kyoko Ogata uh, is a classically trained marimba player and taiko drum leader. Uh, will join Selena on her journey through the world of storytelling. So that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, there is, uh, it is a paid event, but uh, you can check out the tickets uh, for it and uh, see if they have, uh, trying to see if they have a, Pretty sure there is a Facebook event notice for that. So, yeah, facebookevent.com. It's Queens. Oh, it's actually a photo. So go to Facebook. Go to uh, the Isabel Center for the Performing Arts. Uh, check on their photos. That will probably pop up, pop up right away, and uh, you will be able to link into it and find out more about it. Uh, there is got time for one more quick one here. Uh Union Gallery is Cezanne's uh, Closet 2020 is also happening a week from tomorrow. So Saturday, February 8th, uh, the preview is from 7 to 8 p.m. Ticket draw 8 p.m. I would suggest you either email uh, Union Gallery for more information if you're not familiar with the event or uh, check out their website uh, or their, looks like, yeah, Union Gallery dot queensu.ca slash fundraisers slash Cezanne's Closet. So that's their website, and it will take you there. And uh, Union Gallery is located in uh, the, on the first floor of Stauffer Library in Queen University, corner of Union and University. And I always uh, save shows uh, to my blog space. I should mention that. Uh, at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. We'll remain there for four years. Shortly after I get home, I do that. I want to thank you for tuning in to the first hour, and I'm doing this ahead of a song I'm going to play to take us to the second so I can kind of get things in order here. And uh, you've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. My name's Bruce here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. I'd like to say... Thanks for tuning in the first hour. Hope you can hang in here for the second hour, and you're going to hear a wonderful little uh, telephone interview uh, I had with uh, Charlene Jones, and then she's going to give you a reading from her latest book. So stay tuned for that right after the top of the hour. Here is... uh, Trying to find Joanne Newsom. 
song called Jackrabbits. I was tired of being drunk. My face cracked like a joke. So I swung through here like a brace of jackrabbits with their necks all broke. I stumbled at the door with my boots and I knocked against the jam. And I scrabbled at your chance like a mute with my fists of ham. Trying to
And good afternoon. Into the we're back in the second hour. It's five o'clock. In fact, just a few seconds after. You are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM, located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. Do stream live online as well, www.cfrc.ca. And right before the top of the hour, you heard uh, Joanna Newsom uh, with a song called Jackrabbits. I am not familiar with them as uh, recording artists, but I really love that song, and I'm going to have to explore more of their work. Uh, I'm guessing it's at least a few years old, so just judging by uh, the place I picked it off of. So let in, let's go ahead and move into this hour. Uh, in this second hour, you're going to hear a recent interview I conducted with author Charlene Jones, uh, followed by her reading from her latest book, it a memoir called My Impossible Life, uh, that was just released in November. I will mention first, though, that uh, just the usual hourly announcement that occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. I had kind of uh, toyed around uh, with how I was going to air this because uh, it's, uh, the interview was about 20 minutes, as was the reading, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But uh, I kind of thought maybe I'd break them up, but you know what? I think I'm just going to play them together, back-to-back, -back, straight through. And uh, but uh, also want to play a couple of pieces of music on this show as well. So I'm going to do something that's a little unusual. I don't usually start an hour out, but I have from time to time uh, with a set of music. And uh, I think, and I have a reason too. I trying to decide what year this this album uh, this CD is actually a compilation uh, the, that was put together as part of our funding drive uh, that used to happen in February way back uh, uh, this is a few years in the past when it used to happen during those uh, that month or late January early February and uh, it's called Civic Guilt and it was put together either by volunteers who were musicians themselves or uh, people that they knew. And so I believe that's how it went. It's called Civic Guilt. And what amazed me is that this has a release date, a date of 2013. That means it was either six or seven years ago that uh, this album came out, and I just can't believe it And uh, because I found it. And I love uh, a number of the songs on it. Two of them I wanted to play today, and I think uh, might be a nice set a be a nice setting uh, to lead us into Charlene's interview and then her reading. So, what you're going to hear off of it again? It's called Civic Guilt: uh, Colon, a Kingston compilation. And uh, first up, you're going to hear that actually. Uh, the last track. It's Amanda Balsis, and uh, the song is called Kingston's Gray, My Sweetheart. Mm -hmm. 
And again, you just heard um, Amanda Balsis with uh, Kingston's Gray, My Sweetheart, and that's off of, again, uh, a CD that was put together here at CFRC or through CFRC called Civic Guilt, uh, it's a Kingston compilation back in 2013. Hard to believe it's been that many years. Coming up, Charlene Jones, uh, again, recently launched her latest book, uh, a memoir called My Impossible Life, and by recently, uh, it is uh, was came out in November. And uh, here, what you're going to hear now, uh, in, that will fairly, quite, almost, let's put it that way, I was looking for the right word, almost fill the full hour, 
but a uh, wonderful little telephone interview we had. Um, and then a reading uh, with uh, Charlene Jones. These are both done again on the phone last week. I need to explain something, though, uh, that... Uh, that may seem quite noticeable, especially playing them, as I will now back-to-back. I had recorded the full reading after her interview. Uh, Go figure, Murphy's Law. My phone had uh, technical issues, so it was making this beeping sound. Uh, I guess the battery was apparently never happened to me before, ever. Uh, Battery was running low, and so when I let her know, we were going to go ahead and... uh, redo the uh, reading portion uh, recorded over the phone but uh, she decided to uh, record the reading and uh, saved it as a file and then sent it to me so we could complete the project there uh, that uh, morning so it worked out very very well you will notice a the interview will definitely sound like a telephone interview but the uh reading itself is going to be quite pristine so that's almost better that it worked out that way so here again is i can't remember the date Uh, i think i wrote it down here somewhere yeah on the 23rd of january i conducted this what i just told you (laughs) with charlene jones here we go well, good morning, Charlene. Hi, Bruce. How are you? I'm well today. How are you doing? I'm good. <clears throat> For those of you out there, I'm uh, speaking with Charlene. Do you go by your middle name or uh, at all, or? Okay, so for the second book, but not for not for now. Okay, so <laughs> Charlene Jones, uh, you live in Toronto, correct? I live about an hour outside of Toronto. Oh, perfect. Markham. I live on a small lake. I feel very blessed. Oh, that sounds really beautiful. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and uh, Char- so Charlene Jones uh, lives obviously north of. Is it north? Yes, it's northeast of Toronto, about an hour. Oh, okay. Uh, well, you know, depending on traffic, it can go anywhere from two hours to 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you've recently uh, released, launched uh, your latest book, a memoir called, well, uh, it's called My Impossible Life. Correct. And... Uh, Tried, I've toyed with how I'm going to do this interview, and uh, we're going to, for those of you again out there, you're going to hear an interview first, and then you're going to hear Charlene reading from that book. Uh, so, but, and I've toyed with how to approach this, but I think what we're going to do is it's going to seem like not as chronological as I would normally do these, uh, but. Uh, you have published other books. Uh, uh, I have. I have published two other books. One work of fiction called The Stain, and it, it works with reincarnation. And another book called Medicine Buddha, Medicine Mind, which is actually a very simple to read, very easy to understand exploration of the theme between neuroscience and visualization meditation. Ah, oh, sounds wonderful. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Was there a difference? Yeah, you've got a book of fiction and a book of nonfiction. Was there a difference in the writing process? Yes, the fiction work is much more interior 
uh, it's more uh, for me it had to do with creating and sustaining the visual images I was very aware of visualis Im visualization images and I wanted to write from those images so the stain is really I've been told many times it should be a movie I wrote it so that it reads like a movie oh wow you can you can visualize you go through and, you, and because readers are doing that anyway and we don't nearly teach enough of that yet generally about how you're activating that part of your brain uh -huh. when you're reading and you're completely carried away in the story you're actually creating this world and so i wrote it completely from that point of view with medicine buddha medicine mind i did a little bit of that i spoke a little bit about for example, the, the mythology and story of a, a person named Padmasambhava. He was a great Indian uh, pundit. He was a teacher and um, went into the north crazy world of Tibetans and brought Buddhism to the Tibetans. And there's a, a lot of fun stories that, for example, he was in a tavern one day and because he was dressed strangely and they knew he was not from the local area, the bartender with a room full of guys, we can suppose, said, I'm not, I'm not giving you anything to drink. So he threw his purba, his big knife, into the bar, wooden bar, and said, the sun will not set until you give me something to drink. And so, indeed, after three days of the sun not setting, everyone was up in arms and coming to the bartender and saying, please give him something, and so they did. Wow. So that kind of fun story, but, you know, gets elaborated a little bit more visually. But I also needed to speak about neuroscience, and, and it's just, I just have a very pedestrian understanding of it. But the mantra of neuroscience makes me very happy. It says, neurons that fire together, wire together. Oh, that is cool. Right? Yeah. And the scientists, of course, came up with this. I just love science. Scientists, they have this great sense of humor. And, and <laughs> so neurons that wire fire apart, wire apart. Now, what that means is whatever our habits are, if we can fire apart from them, do something different, those actual neural patterns that are compelling us and moving us toward behaviors we don't really want in our life, they will wither. Oh, wow. Wither. They go away. And that means you can actually make change. So this is why it's so exciting to me. I understand, yeah. Right? You can see the potentials for this are enormous. And when it comes to things like physical pain, even, there are ways to uh, kind of ignore the pain, as it were, and mm -hmm. move toward. Now, I have great respect for anyone who is in physical pain. But I took my idea that, oh, this might mean that if you are involved with pain, what's keeping you there is actually fear. Because my area is actually working with emotion. I work with people's emotions. I help them clear it, and it's my job, my profession. Mm -hmm. So I took this to my friend who's 20 years older than I am, and she is my, we were uh, performance poetry partners, and she had a steel rod put in her back because she had such bad deterioration of her spine. Mm-hmm. So I took this to her in conversation, and as I, I was looking at her face very carefully, and I was saying, and her name's Linda Stitt, she's amazing, if you ever get a chance to go to Toronto's Transact Club once a month to her salon, it's now run by Glenn Hornblast, great group of people down there. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, she's fabulous. It's a warm, warm room. If you want to read, that's the best room in the city. Oh, wow. Oh, no, it's, they're so warm. The, the audience is there to listen, which is such a rare experience, I think, wow. for many poets and writers. In any case, I'm looking at her, and I'm saying, now, Linda, this is my idea that 
the problem is that the fear is what holds us to the pain. If we can release the fear, the pain will go away. And she looked at me with this incredible smile. She said, Char, when I figured that out, it stopped hurting. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of part of where that book went. So you can see that it's a different, it's more, it has more exterior kind okay, of information yeah. and how to weave the science in there a little bit so it's not disruptive or overwhelming. There were different challenges and different questions, yeah. Oh, that sounds incredible. When did these two books come out? Um, Medicine Buddha came out in 2015, and the, the stain was the first one. It came out in 2014. Okay, very, uh, relatively close together then. Yes. And how many, I don't know, you probably internalized a lot of what was in either of those books for a very long time, but when did you actually start writing either of those? When did I start writing either of them? Uh-huh. I would only say I'd started writing them in about 2013. Oh, wow. Fairly quickly then. Yeah, well, you know, my, my uh, university education, I went, as you know, to Boise State, Idaho, and it was a great experience in Idaho, and I spent seven years learning how to teach writing. Oh, cool. And I've been a poet since I was a little child, and writing poetry off and on in my life, and kept journals, and always interested in writing as an art form. So the question was rather to me at that point, why is it taking me so long? get to this <laughs> you know and so finally getting the uh, fire under me to do it and um, I went ahead and just kept and I realized there were two books and I had to write them sort of simultaneously oh, that makes sense oh good I, I'm never sure that I'm making sense <laughs> <laughs> yeah well me uh, as well so just, there you go <laughs> well, have you written books yeah I've got I've got some collections of poetry out yeah I'm sorry. Oh, thanks. Oh, no, no, it's okay. This is not about me anyway, so <laughs> this is about you. <laughs> and I do podcasts for memoirists and for writers, too, 15 minutes. Oh, yeah, well, well who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's a great, I, I love being on either side of this kind of conversation. Okay, well, that sounds very cool. Yeah. Uh, so you spoke, because uh, you brought it up, and it was coming up really as the next area I wanted to go into, you brought up Linda's name, you also brought up the fact that uh, you have written, and, and I didn't know it went back that early, but for a very long time I've written poetry, but with Linda Stitt, you, you released a book called uh, Bliss Pig, and I believe it's called Bliss Pig and Other Poems, uh, and that came out, I think, in 1999, is that right? Yes, that's true. Very and cool. We had written with uh, three of us, uh, including Cecily Quiet, who is, was also a meditation teacher and a, and a poet. We'd written a book called uh, Uncritical Mass in Consort. Uncritical Mass was the name that Linda and I and Cecily, when she was around, she traveled a great deal, but when she was in town, the three of us would read, and we, that was our, our name. That was our, what we hung ourselves on, as it were. And uh, so that was our... our uh, brand for, oh, I say 10 years, 15 years. So we wrote Uncritical Mass in Consort, released it in 1996, and then we wrote Bl Bliss Pig, and it was published by Heritage Press, which I believe has been defunct ever in the meantime. 
But we did get a great uh, grant from the Canadian government. I think, um, yeah, I think it was the federal government for that book, for Bliss Pig. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was very helpful. It's a great place we live, Canada. It really is. It really is. Uh, hey, I, I kind of wondered when I read about uncritical mass uh, that that sounded like almost a performance group kind of title. You got it. Yeah, I kind of wondered about that, so that's cool. Thank you for clearing that up. No, you got that. That's okay. right. We were. We had a lot of fun. That is cool. I also see, I a little bit, did a little tiny bit of research other than what you sent me. I think I picked it off somewhere else. Uh, you also... Uh, you hosted, I believe, a community radio show called Off the Top. Yes, I did at our local radio station, Whistle Radio Station here in Stouffville. I, I did that for, I think, a couple or three years. I kind of lost Oh, that's too cool. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot about how to create podcasts and how to do that stuff. And uh, everybody was very warm and welcoming. So, yeah, it was a good experience. Oh, that's too cool. And when, when did that happen? That was, I say, around the same time. I think it was around 2013 through 2015 or in, maybe okay. even into 16 when I switched over to just doing my own podcast. Podcasts, yeah. Yeah, and, at home I wanted to do them. Yeah. yeah, that's very cool. And I can suggest that uh, you, for those out there, you can find those podcasts. Uh, I'm going to plug your uh, website, uh, soulsciences.net. You can find the podcast there. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Plus, you can find information about you and about the books as well. And let's just say, because I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to take anything away from your reading. But let's go ahead and move into uh, your uh, latest book now. And uh, I'm going to back up a second. I'm sorry. I really wanted to talk since poetry is kind of, kind of what the show's about. I wanted to just explore a little bit about your poetry before we move into the book. How's that? Sure. I'm, I'm happy with that. Bruce. Okay. Absolutely. I love it. Oh, wonderful. And uh, do you have a pre uh, is I'm guessing you already mentioned that the difference between writing fiction and nonfiction was different. I guess there might even be a different way, let's call it, that you create poetry or absorb poetry or... Completely. That's wonderful. And uh, do you prefer privacy or do you prefer places that have maybe at least a little bit different energy, I guess, higher in? I don't want to use the word higher because that may or may not be the case. But a different energy than just being at home or isolated. No, I'm definitely a solitude bird. Are you really? Yeah, I, I can't hear the inner voice unless mm. I am alone. I understand. I totally get that. Are you the same, or do you go I'm to I'm kind a, of... I like to write a lot in cafes, but when I'm in cafes, I like to... So I like some of it, but what I do is... I'm old school. I still have a Walkman. I plug my ears uh, with the Walkman and just some kind of music that I know very well, and it's but it somehow is, seems to be a catalyst to allow those voices to come that I believe you're talking about. Yeah, I, I feel it very often comes from my body. Ah, very cool. I need, yeah, I need 
to be aware of the sensations. Oh, that is too cool. Building, yeah. And that sounds very um, cool to have the Walkman. I, I still write longhand. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> I do too. I and I, oh. I, 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 I have my reasons for that. What do you, What are your reasons for that? Uh, I think it's just wiring. I think I'm hooked. Yeah. I think I'm hooked up better. The the articulation is faster. But I also uh, have not really acclimatized to first draft vertical. Okay. I'm first draft gla- horizontal. Once I once I'm editing, I can go vertical. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. How yeah. about you? Does that work? Same. Yeah. Edit? Same way. But I find the, the the that longhand writing is more intimate. Yeah. So when it comes to poetry, especially, and to me, it should be more intimate, and so it just seems like the, I don't know. Yeah. The 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 best way, at least for me, to write it. And I've also read studies too about when we create something by hand like that. We use a different side of the brain as opposed to the mechanical typing side. Absolutely. If you think about the fingers on a keyboard, it's very yeah. different from holding a pen. Yeah, exactly. across a page. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, yeah. I never thought of it, but that, that does make sense. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So, sorry for all of you. You know, some people, I'm not criticizing. Some people just, they, every, I think everybody's got their own way of doing things. Like with meditation, one of the um, areas that you start to get aware of is that when you get familiar with something, whether it's poetry writing or meditating, you discover what works for you. Exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. No, this has been wonderful. Yeah, thanks thanks for this segue, this different uh, chat, but we're going to... Segway wasn't the right word for that, but segue is kind of the right word for it. It's going to take us into talking about uh, your latest book, uh, again, called My Impossible Life. I believe it came out in November. Yes, it did. Very cool. And, uh, again, I'm not going to give anything away uh, about what you're going to read so I don't want to influence any of that I'm just going to introduce it by saying that you lived a quite untypical life I guess (laughs) and and I will let you read whatever you're going to read from the book because I don't want to ruin anything that you might read from the book by uh, stating a portion of what might be in the book how's that? I just wanted to mention, because I'm so thrilled, that Amazon.ca, my book has been number has been a bestseller in three categories since it began. Like today, it's in Tibetan Buddhism at number eight, Alternative Healing at number nine, and Travel Adventure eBooks at number 27. And this is just um, uh, my heart beats <laughs> very quickly when I think of this. It means people are reading the book. It does. And I have received nothing but very, very powerful, positive about this, not just the actual story, which is, as you've indicated, I always knew it was a powerful story. My attempt was to try to write a very good book, literature, and I don't know that I've actually accomplished that, but I've been getting some very good reviews. So, Speaking of which, if I can butt in with this, I was going to mention these as well. I did look up uh, the reviews on both Goodreads and also Amazon. Amazon, you had 
six reviews, and they're all five stars, which is the max. And so yeah. just uh, echoing a bit what you said, but I wanted to share. Uh, yeah, I thought that the one was, well, one thing that was brought up is that one of them said it doesn't read like prose, it reads like poetry. So I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, but one said, uh, and it's from Catherine, there was another, well, let's do Irene, I'm just going to read uh, Simply Stunning, and then it just went on from there uh, to talk about, uh, as she went on to say, among a number of other things, it was profound and brilliant and highly recommended. But Catherine's really touched me. It said, ironically, uh, Char uh, Charlene Jones' memoir, My Impossible Life, may help to make, a, make living a good life more possible for readers. Even though we may not have had extreme experiences, the memoir unfolds in such a way that is often identifiable for the reader. There are many tips for anyone interested in examining their own life and the goal of be being more aware of what's happening, good and bad, and how to feel like a functioning part of this crazy world we find ourselves in. Even if a reader doesn't want a self-help book, Jones tells an engrossing story in such a way we must keep turning pages as the full picture slowly develops right up to the end. Thank you for reading that. Oh, my pleasure. I thought I was really touched by, uh, by that. Uh, and there were others, too, all equally as good. But uh, we only have a limited amount of time here, and I wanted to vote as much to you as I can. So, uh, Thank you, Bruce. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to hearing you now read from the book. How's that? I'm right for it. Here I am, ready Perfect. to read. Cool. Thanks. September 1968. I slide into the new powder blue Pontiac, leaving bright autumn leaves, late summer air behind. Nothing can go wrong. I left in the dark the night before, hitchhiked out of my old life onto the black highway of this unknown. No longer compelled by dictates of parents, teachers, even friends, I am free to decide, free to do as I please. I am 16. Everyone everywhere, from commercials to pop songs to poems, promotes freedom and personal choice. It's my life, and I am free. Miles spin beneath as I stare at the blurred bushes and trees that line the Trans-Canada Highway north of Sudbury. I lean my cheek against the cool window behind the driver. How far you planning to go? The driver's watery blue eyes stare at me from the rearview mirror a slightly twisted grin on his soft, large lips. Edmonton? Into the small silence, I add. And you? Oh, me and Gary, he's... The driver nods in the direction of the handsome, swarthy young man whose brown eyes had hypnotized me into the car in the front seat. He's Gary. He's Al. Gary responds as though this is rehearsed. We're just free, you know. We go wherever we want, don't we, Gary? Al chuckles without mirth. I nod. I know what you mean. Do you? Al shoots back at me but glances at Gary. What's your name? Charlie. 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 He repeats as though trying to remember something. What do you guys do for work? What? The word slices towards me. I see a taut snag in the corner of his mouth. Gary absorbs Al's tension. We just do whatever we feel like, don't we, Al? We're free. 
That's right, Gar, just free to do what we want. That's us, free and easy. We just hang around, go wherever we want, right, Gary? Al repeats. That's right, Al. Gary looks out the window. We don't believe in being tied down, kept on other people's time, wasting our lives working for the man. That right, Gary? That's right, Al. What about money? What do you do for money? A short pause. You see that canvas bag back there? Al, his watery eyes claiming mine, asks, well, that canvas bag contains two shotguns. Gary here has sawed one off, right, Gar? That's right, Al, I did. Gary nods shyly. Those shotguns are the ones we used to shoot the legs out from under a gas station attendant in Welland after we broke out of prison. You know where Welland is, Charlie? Southwest of Toronto. Inside, all my pieces separate, fall away. At home, I sit on the kitchen floor, the avocado green stove to my back, the matching green indoor-outdoor carpet hard beneath my flannel nightgown. I crouch, knees bent, compulsively tucking the edges of the material beneath my toes, then repeatedly stretching my toes beyond the border. School friends come by, fill our compact, orderly kitchen, and want to hear what happened. I tell and retell the story about the two men, the car I got into, stolen, the canvas bags with their shotguns, damp September in North Ontario, breaking into cabins, these two men, Al and Gary. I will laugh. They are not very smart, but I convince them to be my friends. With every repetition, I shake in spasms I cannot hide, do not control or understand. Those men didn't hurt you? Whenever I am asked this, a charge beyond my control thrusts upward through my body, rushes against the tightly clamped tissue of my muscles, my mute cells, my trembling bones and flesh, witnessing what I have buried within. Those cells leap to release their truth beyond my verbal betrayal. No, they didn't hurt me. They wanted me as hostage, nothing more. Nothing went wrong. I almost never speak of the angel. From childhood, I knew my mother had visions. My mother knew when death would come and to whom. A dark hooded figure approached her, usually in her dreams. She lay in terror, knowing the visitor meant death. Closer the figure came, the closer was death to someone she knew, possibly loved. I knew of this and that my mother was afraid of her visions and their power. She didn't want me to have what so frightened her. But lineage cannot be wished away. My visionary inheritance sweeps back at least four generations and spans the Atlantic to Scotland. Visionary sight ran true in my great-grandmother's Scots blood, sang in her sleep all the nights of her life, whispering to herself the secrets of the future. It is 1905 in the photo I have. She stands on the dock of Leith, Scotland, a tall, large-boned, dark-haired beauty. I imagine her turning from the camera to study the wooden boxes at her feet, mentally checking their content. Silver cutlery, wedgewood china, white linens, crystal goblets, fancy glass cake plates, whose embossed surfaces will make ripples against my child fingers half a century later. A black-stemmed fruit bowl, heavy silver birds that shake out salt and pepper, platters roomy enough for both meat and vegetables, all she would need to set up a fine home in the new world. I imagine she stares across the water's endless gray humpback, her one sightless wandering eye casting about like a homeless waif against the present, finding its way past veils and into the future, 
seeing what was to come as easily as what was here now. Had that eye revealed how staying in Edinburgh might mean death for herself or her children, death by her husband's hands? Why else leave with her two children in tow, both under six years old? The stories of my grandmother and her mother, how their visions encompassed the rim of time and beyond, dotted the years of my childhood, markers for what I myself would experience and come to understand as normal. My father told me Graham, Ida, had climbed the stairs to her apartment where her sleeping son, my mother's older brother, was being cared for by Grandma Great. As my grandmother pushed open the door, she turned sheet white and almost fell. What is it, Ida? It's Gord, Mama. I see him. I see my baby in a casket. My grandmother announced the death of her firstborn three days before he actually died. Within a year of returning from those three days as hostage with Al and Gary, I met and began to follow the contentious meditation teacher, Leslie George Dawson. That meant joining his group of students. The forever van, a brightly painted VW van full of students of Rinpoche, as Dawson was now called, came through Toronto heading to the East Coast. I joined them, then, according to my journal, I left the van hitchhiking with two women to Montreal. This same journal contains details of the trip, including descriptions of the shops and houses, as if someone else, someone not me, wanted to remember I had been there. I have no memory of the experience. Had traveling in the van, the rhythm of the wheels turning across the tarmac sounded deeply enough inside my flesh that cells released the original hitchhiker into this moment, this experience, had that release resulted in a compulsive need to hitchhike. What I remember is waking up, a kind of coming to on a sidewalk in bright sunshine, looking at a smiling woman, a stranger to me, and asking her, how did I get here? The woman laughs. Don't you remember? That one phrase captures a core of my life. Remember, don't you remember? Memory, I am memory, don't remember. I remember both those memories I have consciously and memories others assure me I have. Another year rolled round and Dawson announced he would go on pilgrimage to India. I stayed behind, prepared to join the group in the new year, but a vision propelled me to leave in October that same year. I knew the group was either in India or Australia, so I boarded a plane for India, confident the way would be made clear. I had had a vision and believed all would be well. Through a spontaneous meeting with a world-renowned political figure, I found the group in India. Tibetan initiation ceremonies called wongs had rained down upon the group for several days before I met up with them, and now I too was initiated into the secret meditations of Tibetan Vajrayana Tantra. On days when there were no wongs or when daylight still shone afterwards, I walked the main dirt path that ran through Rajpur. The sun burned its light in my eyes even through the smoke rising in dense columns from dung fires. The acrid scent stung inside my nostrils. I tried to practice being aware walking up and down the small main dirt road, tried to focus my senses, tried to stay present. Inevitably, I found myself singing all the songs from Bob Dylan's Nashville Skyline, Simon and Garfunkel's Parsley, Sage, Rosemary and Thyme, the songs that ran in my head day and night, I sang out loud. And those women crouched down, red or yellow saris gathered between their legs and hoisted into waistbands, patting cow dung into round shapes to put on the fire, 
babies slung at their breast or playing in the dirt, what did they see? A young white woman wrapped in an ochre-colored shawl, gray trousers on her legs and hair cut short, singing out loud as she gazed at the trees. Did they murmur to each other in their native language, there's another one, crazy. They have everything and they come here and act this way. Did they shake their heads in pity or scorn? The truth is I hated it. No bars, no men, whatever drugs might have been available were far too dangerous for me to access. No dancing, no way to douse my chattering, shattered, overheated nervous system. No relief inside the temple or out from the constant inner jangle of songs, commercials, poems, half phrases, crunch of words, memories, longings, and anxieties reeling through a polluted tide of unfelt, unresolved physical and emotional pain. Beast demanded to be fed. Without bars, drugs, or parties, Beast consumed me. The yearning for Toronto trolled through my belly, fueling a sentimental lurch toward my parents' dank basement where I had lived the drugs and drinks so easily available, the music late nights and wasted days. It had been my crippled life, and had the choice been mine, I'd have gone back in an instant. I did not recognize the signs, but I was in rehab. From India, we traveled to Sydney, Australia, to make money for the three-month meditation retreat scheduled to begin in New Zealand eight months later. Trucks pummeled the road day and night, flinging an interminable supply of dry dust in all directions. Across the street from the house we rented, a vacant lot refused to grow weeds, although plastic bags, a deserted rusty baby carriage, multiple broken bottles, rough dirty shrubs, old condoms, candy wrappers, and used plastic diapers proliferated. Our house had three proper bedrooms upstairs, a small bathroom, another bedroom, mine downstairs in the front of the house, then behind that, a living room and kitchen and a second bathroom built onto the back of the house, so one crossed through the living room and kitchen on the way to shower or pee. I often went barefoot as much because I saw myself as a hippie as to keep quiet in the house. One night, we'd been there for about a week, when I trod softly toward the bathroom at back across the badly worn carpet of the living room. As I walked across the kitchen threshold, the sole of my left foot landed on a slimy, slippery surface. I scrambled not to fall and flipped on the light. Pale, moist-looking slugs, four to six inches big, suckered along in all directions, easily 20 or more of them across the floor and climbing up the cupboard doors. A sound like tiny castanets filled my ears from the slugs' companions, cockroaches, the length of my index finger, their antenna waving in the light, their focus undeterred by my presence. I fled to my room, put on my clogs, walked carefully back through the invasion to the bathroom at back, leaned over the toilet, and retched hard. We worked and saved, and I made it to the three-month meditation retreat. Then from New Zealand, we crossed the Pacific on a cruise ship and made our way to Vancouver, where we worked to save money to gain the next course, which would be therapy in the California Baja, therapy led by Dawson. We made it to Mexico. Dawson instructed us to meet him by the edge of the water, under the blazing white sun softened by the breeze, inhaling with each breath the distinct scent of ocean salt, I stood among the others as he spoke. The purpose of all psychotherapy, he began, and my blood leapt, slamming against the perpetually numb state of my muscles and nerves, is to provide a basis for rebirth. Carl Jung called birth our first trauma. Here my heart in its dank prison sang. New information, 
new knowledge. Someone knew the way, the path. Someone knew how to lift the shackles of repetitive patterns of behavior in which most live. Someone knew how to help. His words fell upon me like anointment with holy oil. He continued, birth is the first trauma. The conditions of your birth and to some degree your mother's state of being while pregnant, these are what created the basis of your conditioned responses built right into your nervous system. We can loosen those patterned responses by using body posture, such as described by Alexander Lowen, by using psychodrama, mandala, and meditation techniques. All are to evoke the experience of the transcendent. Now under his direction, we stood in about four feet of water in two lines, our hands holding above our heads those of the person opposite. This created an arc, and with the water below, simulated the birth canal. Each of us had to swim the length, 20 feet or so, of this human tunnel. Way to go! You can do it! That's it! That's it! Rose on all sides as we cheered each baby one of us on. My turn. I sucked in a large, deep breath, slipped down, feeling the warm wet enclose me entirely. An unexpected joy washing every cell propelled me from inside as I slithered the entire length in one go, terribly aware how my long, lean body looked. At the end, I planted my feet below me, started to uncurl my body to the air when hands grabbed mine, making the transition easier. A spontaneous grin of happiness spread across my face. From the California Baja in Mexico, cross-country to the ruins of Belize and Chichen Itza, we made our way. In Cancun, we met Ajax, the owner of a 22-foot motor sailor boat, and convinced him to sail with us four totally inexperienced sailors across the Gulf of Mexico to Key West, Florida. With Mick, an American lad who joined us in Cancun, Jack, who was now my fiancé, and Kathy, another woman from the group, we set out with Ajax to sail the Gulf. We had barely finished watching the straggling group of waving people shrink behind us as we sailed toward the gray curtain of clouds that now puckered the sky in front when Ajax announced, you will all take your turn at watch. My time was midnight, so I descended into the hold to sleep. I was already seasick, but fell out of consciousness immediately. Mick came to get me from my turn at the wheel, and as I climbed up out of the hold through the small hatch, my eyes exploded with stars, stars, stars everywhere, blue, white, large, and dazzling, blinking against the perfect dark. Oh my God, I uttered as I, he helped my hands grab the wheel. Then from my mouth came Mansfield's poem. I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely seas and tide, for the call of the sea is a wild call and cannot be denied. And all I ask is a windy day and the white clouds flying and the flung spray and the blown spume and the seagulls. I don't know if the seagulls ever cried, but the stars swung in a spiral, whirling away in all directions as my head opened and I passed out. I came to later, feeling a little less pained and climbed again through the hatch. As I stood on deck, I noticed the humid air was a strange green color and lay in bands, so I thought I might be hallucinating from the fever I now recognized was raging within my body. The ocean began to bulge upon itself rhythmically. Hi. No one responded. My eyes followed their gray-stricken profiles hooked to the horizon to my left. There, three large gray funnel-shaped clouds dominated. As if a director had clapped his hands, Ajax leapt from stillness to a frenzied action around the boat. 
What's that? Nick pointed to a piece of wood floating a few feet off starboard. That's the rudder. Ajax's voice betrayed no panic, but a shudder, it seemed, ran through the rest of us. Now everyone who can will bail. We have a hole in the bottom of the hull and we'll have to sail the rest of the way to Key West. Start bailing. Down in the gloom, I heard the motor go off. Then the tiny craft gave a terrific tremble and keeled at a steep angle on her side. I knew this as death. The thought of water relentless in all directions, its cold, eerie claim entering first the room, then my nose, choking as my no nose and throat filled. I woke in the cold hotel room where my fiancé had deposited me. Suddenly my eyes opened. The relentless hammering in my back had ceased. The sharp swords in my throat were gone. I sat up easily, and there at the foot of the bed, my three friends had gathered. Native men, I knew them. They were there for me. One with his back to me had a blanket draped across his shoulders. One to my left had a feather in his headband and a very, very white shirt on over calf-colored animal skin pants. The man to the right filled more space than the other two and was less clear to me. I crawled, then floated, feeling totally well better than I ever remembered to the bed's edge as the man with his back to me turned with such a warm welcome I wanted nothing more than to stay with him. They were seated on the dirt ground around a small fire, rattles and ceremonial items spread about. Do you know what we're doing? The man with the blanket asked. At the sound of his voice, this astral body of mine resonated with joy. I want to go with you now. I shot the thought back to him, to the man whose welcome bathed me still. He laughed, repeated my words to the other men who also laughed, so I believed for one precious, uplifted moment I was to be allowed. Then they transferred thought energy together so quickly it was only a blur to me. Sorrow abruptly filled the warm space I'd been bathed in as the man to my left addressed the others in a voice without sentiment, a voice of complete command. No, she has to remain. She is not finished, has more to do. With an animal yowl, I eclipsed back into my body. Pee, warm and smelly, spread out around me. And you just heard a recent uh, interview uh, I conducted with author Charlene Jones, followed by her reading from her latest book, again, uh, called A Memoir. It is a memoir called My Impossible Life. And again, you noticed a bit of difference between the obvious telephone recording and a much more pristine uh, reading that she offered. And so, again, what seemed like a sort of um, bad thing wasn't really uh, because uh, you heard a much nicer reading than that would have sounded probably over the telephone. But sometimes we have to resort to that. So you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. And I mentioned that I was going to play uh, two pieces of music. I'm going back to the same Civic Guilt uh, CD that was compiled here uh, by CFRC volunteers and I believe even recorded here. I'm not sure in studio, but I know that some of it uh, was. I played an earlier cut, and uh, these are both short. The, the one I played earlier, this one is even a bit shorter, I think. But anyway... Let's do this now then. Here is uh, Megan Hamilton with her song called Moth.
And you just heard off of uh, an album actually created for, in part, I think it was actually geared to the funding drive, and I believe it was in 2013 or 2014, in February, January, February. Uh, but this shows 2013, so it might have been recorded in late 2013 for the funding drive in 2014. Anyway, or it could have been 2012 for the 2013. I don't know. So I will have to look that up, and I will let you know. Anyway, a beautiful song by Megan Hamilton called Moth off, again, Civic Guilt, the Kingston compilation. Uh, Very quickly, I just remembered there's one event that I didn't mention in the first hour. Uh, It's a weekly. uh, They meet weekly except for the month of August. The Limestone Limestone Writers Writing Group uh, every Wednesday evening uh, at Stauffer Library in room 239 uh, from, uh, what is it? Seven to eight, or it starts at seven o'clock. I think it's about an hour or so. Uh, but the next one will be Wednesday, February 5th. It's every Wednesday. If you're interested, call, uh, contact DPRATT1939 at hotmail.com. That's Dave. And uh, I'd like to thank you for tuning in uh, this, this afternoon. Uh, you have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. And uh, my name's Bruce. I'm here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. Do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. I just want to remind you that uh, each, again, I try to do this at the end of both hours, that each hour of this show each week uh, will be uploaded to my blog space for it. Shortly after the show ends uh, at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com, uh, will remain there for years. I am going for maybe about half an hour or so uh, to an event as soon as I leave here. So it will be a little later tonight uh, before I, that happens. But I would imagine that certainly by before 8 o'clock it will be on the blog space again that uh, Blog address is finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. Again, we'll remain there for four years. I hope you can tune in next week and uh, hope you can stay tuned as well. Top of the hour, uh, two hours of East Coast music in a show called Saltwater Music, hosted by Rob Carnell. Again, at the top of the hour. Have a great weekend, great week ahead. Catch you here next week. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.